Today, though, we're going to take a look again at Luke chapter 6. And this is the last part of this short little sermon that Jesus gives here in Luke, which in Luke is called the Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it is definitive of people in the kingdom of God. And by that, I don't mean people who have died and gone to heaven and who are now free from the burdens of this life on this earth, but rather, I mean me and you. People in this life who have been called by the Spirit of God to follow after God in the gospel of Jesus. This sermon that Jesus is giving here has, as we've seen, defined the blessings that come in God's kingdom. Blessings that are completely contrary to what the world would desire. It also has defined the love of God's kingdom, a love that stretches even to your enemies. And it also has defined the relationships that that occur and exist in God's kingdom, relationships that are measured by mercy. And then here this morning, in these last sections of this short sermon, Jesus defines a mark of God's kingdom, a mark of those people who live in it, which is a heart that's established in grace. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us this morning. I pray that you would help me to step out of the way, because what we all need to hear are not my words, but your words. And so, Father, we pray that you would give them to us by the work of your Spirit. Would you make us receptive in the depth of our souls, in our very hearts, to your Word? Would you allow for us, Lord, to change, to be made new in the depth of our hearts as we consider your Word from your Scriptures, as we recognize the work and the moving of your Spirit among us? Father, would you give us these things because they alone are life-giving, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen be seated. Thanksgiving week of 2003, I remember the date, the year well, because it was just a month or so after our second and third children were born, twins, born eight weeks early, premature, and a month after their birth, I awoke one night with chest pains. And I realized that my arms were going numb. So I rolled out of bed and I I made my way to the bathroom. I turned on the light and I stood and looked at myself in the mirror and I began to think, I'm 
35 years old, and I have a wife and three young kids, and these things don't happen to people my age. And I said to Mary, who was starting to wake up, I think I'm having a heart attack. Her parents, fortunately, were in town because the children were so little, they'd come to visit. And so they stayed with the kids as we spent time in the hospital. There in the emergency room, the nurse gave me a nitroglycerin pill to increase the flow of blood in my body. It also gave me a splitting headache instantaneously. And that headache did not help the fact that I had been enduring a mild case of the flu for several weeks at that point. And we sat there in the hospital room. They checked me in. And for two days, they tested me. They hooked me up with electronics and did electrocardiograms and uh, cardiac surgeons and doctors came in to check me out and see what was going on. They even did a heart catheter where they, they put a, a device in through your artery and wire it on up inside of you into your chest while on uh, a screen above there's an ultrasound of your heart beating and you can see that wire going into your chest on the screen above. All these things in order to, to investigate, to see what's going on inside of you. Why are you having these reactions? And they found no problems. There was absolutely no sign of heart disease at all. As it turns out, the flu virus had attacked the tissue of my heart and simulated a heart attack. And I suppose if it had gone untreated, it might have caused some problems, but I was not, in fact, having a heart attack. But for two days, they poked and they prodded, and they looked under the hood and they found nothing. I got a heart inspection that most people don't get unless their life is on the line. That was the silver lining of that whole episode, that that I, I knew now for sure that I had no signs of any kind of heart disease and no risk at all, as far as they could tell at that point. But a little little flu virus had gotten to the tissue of my heart, and that was all. In defining the, the mark of life in his kingdom, Jesus here demands a heart inspection. He inserts a heart catheter, as it were, into the depth of your soul, and he pokes and he prods, but not in order to find out what's under the hood. He already knows well what's there. He does it, rather, to help you see that you must inspect your heart. He has, in the sermon, just described hypocrisy, that disease that's rampant throughout the human race. We all have it to some degree or another. And he's just described how we hide behind our masks. And, and he's explained that if you're going to remove the log from your own eye, then inevitably you're going to see inside yourself. You're going to see your heart. Now the Bible's idea, of course, of the heart is very different than what we in our culture think of in terms of the heart, and when we use that word, we use it in some different ways. You know, we say of someone that, that he or she has heart, and by that we mean that they have guts or they have strength inside that enables them to finish a hard race or a hard assignment. They have heart. Or we say that you should follow your heart, or maybe people tell you that, you should follow your heart, and when we say that, what we mean is you need to follow your feelings, you need to follow your, 
your emotions and go wherever they may take you. And those are the ways that we use that word heart. But the Hebrew idea, the biblical idea of heart is entirely different. It's much more significant. The Hebrew concept of heart is a combination of, of the intellectual and the emotional and the volitional capacities of your being as a person. It's concerned with the way that you think and you feel and, and the way that you will or the way that you choose to do what you do or not do what you don't do. The heart is the inner core, the innermost core of your very being as a human person. The Old Testament reading that you heard moments ago gave a, a little sampling list of some of the ways in which God uses the term throughout the Old Testament and then on into the New as well. And that was just a short sample list. The word heart is given so many times in Scripture because God is ultimately concerned with your heart. The mark of one who lives in the kingdom of God is that they, he or she, is on a path by the work of the Spirit of God to gradually become consistent. In other words, to become the same on the inside as what they present on the outside. Or you might think of it this way. The mark of one who lives in the kingdom of God is to be ultimately transformed into a truly human being. Because in the fallen world in which we live and because of the state of our hearts and the condition in which we are, we're not truly human. We're deformed and broken. And so the gospel is at work to cause you to become truly human. And that transformation begins with the heart. Luke shows us here that your heart is revealed by the words you speak. You hypocrite, Jesus has said, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take out the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, as we saw last week, stop hiding behind the mask that is your neighbor's flaw or your neighbor's fault. Stop blame casting to make yourself look better. Stop pretending to be something that you're not by pointing fingers at what other people are. He goes on, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. You will inevitably produce what you are. We have in our front yard two oak trees. One of them is a large red oak tree, and the other one is a bit of a smaller live oak tree. And and every November, that red oak tree drops a million nuts into the grass. And then every March, that live oak tree drops another million nuts onto the deck and into the grass. And I have never been baffled by the fact that when I walk out into the yard and see all those those nuts, there is not among them a single walnut, nor chestnut, nor pecan, nothing that I could use as a person, but the squirrels love them, All there are there are acorns. Why? Why am I not baffled by that? Because those trees produce from their roots the only thing that they're made to produce. That's all that they're going to show. And just so, figs don't come from thorn bushes and grapes don't come from bramble bushes, as Jesus says in this little 
illustration here, and it is, you got to admit, an absurdly simple illustration, isn't it? I mean, go figure. It is just as simple as it can be. Figs produce figs, and brambles produce brambles. Acorns produce acorns. That's all you're going to get from them. The fruit that you produce comes from the root of what you are. He says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Your heart is revealed by the words that you speak. The words that you speak are perhaps the most prominent and invisible fruit that comes out of the depth of your heart. James, the brother of Jesus, evidently was maybe there present when this sermon was going on, or if he wasn't, later on he heard the same teaching as This illustration surely got bantered about during the next three years plenty. And James in his letter would would write, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can a fig tree produce olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? In other words, James is saying, If your faith in Christ is legitimate, then the words that you speak should reveal a heart of grace. So what do your words reveal? I mean, think about yourself for a moment and and just do a little self-inspection examination along with me about yourself. Think about yourself, not not about your spouse or about your children and and you who have your parents among you. Don't don't be thinking about your parents' fruit that they're producing. I'm asking you to think about yourself. This is the hard thing to do, isn't it? What are the, the fruits that you see? What are the words that come from your mouth, the words that you speak? What do they do to people? Are they words predominantly filled with critique and criticism? Or are they words that are filled with correction? Because you know the right way to do things and people around you don't. This is something I struggle with. It's a, it's a total self-righteousness issue. I'm the one who knows how to do things right. And I just come in behind them and fix it. Maybe that's you. Maybe correction is the word that's on your lips. Or maybe sarcasm. That's an easy way to hide behind our words, isn't it? To, to subtly jab at somebody, a judgment that we want to suspend above them, but we use our words to do it. What, what are the words that you use, and, and what do they do to the people around you? Do they give life, or do they give death? I mean, consider Jesus. People either opposed him and shriveled up in their own anger and hatred and judgmental spirits, or... They received him, and they began to flower and flourish. Life was born in them, right? And that's what we see throughout the the Gospels. Jesus made blind men see, but he never made seeing men blind. Jesus made crippled children walk, but he never made walking children crippled. Jesus made leprous men clean, but he never made clean men leprous. He made bleeding women well, but he never made well women bleed. He made dead men rise, but he never made live men dead. He changed water into wine, but he never changed wine into water. And at the beginning of time, God himself spoke. And what happened? Creation came into existence. Life was born. The universe was then there Why? Because the words of God reveal the heart of God. 
And the heart of God is life. So what is good fruit? What is the good fruit that we're supposed to be bearing here? Well, this sermon, as we've seen in past weeks, has already shown you much of that. What should your words reveal? Well, Jesus has stated it here. Your words should be words of forgiveness rather than condemnation. They should be words of mercy rather than judgment. They should be words of of love for your enemies and not words of demanding repayment from your enemies. And yet, this brings us to a bit of a problem here because how can you get that kind of fruit? How can you get it? I mean, how can you get there? Paul Tripp is a counselor type who is a pastor and preaches some and, and, uh, and speaks of matters of the heart often and teaches of these things. He has a great illustration. He says, imagine if I had a, a, an apple tree in my backyard and it had grown tall enough and begun to produce leaves and, and fruit on its branches, but there was something evidently wrong with it because all it ever produced were, were mushy, rotten apples. And I just got weary of it. After a few years, that's all it would ever produce. And so I decided I need to fix the tree. And so what I did was I went to the grocery store and I bought a, a big case of fresh honey crisp apples, big red and yellow sweet crispy apples. And I took them out to my backyard with a staple gun and I took those apples and I began to staple them up onto the branches of the tree. What do you think my neighbor would say if he saw me doing that? You're crazy, Right? I mean, it's absurd, right? It's an absurd illustration. And yet, that's what we want to do. We want in our hearts to try harder in order to be loving to people. We want to try harder to do this thing that we know is a good thing to do. We just want to try harder to staple good fruit onto the dead branches of our lives. And it's all in vain. The sovereignty of God... And the inability of man comes, they they come clashing together right here in this matter, don't they? Because you can't change the fruit that you bear. You can't change the roots of the tree that you are. You are what you are, right? You can't change it. The fruit that you bear or the words that you speak will reveal the heart that you have. But all your efforts cannot change it. Only one thing can change it. And that is the one that you know. Your heart is changed by the one that you know. Verse 46, Jesus asks them this question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, it's early in Jesus' ministry at this point in the book of Luke. We're we're in chapter 6, and so we're, what, 25% of the way through the entire gospel at this point. And so it's just early on. He's just now presenting and defining the kingdom of God to these people that have gathered. He's just named the 12 apostles the day before, even on that day. And, and, and it's early on. People are coming and they're following and they're listening, but there's not much of a track record yet. And so what is Jesus doing in asking them this question? Why don't you do what I tell you? You call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I tell you. Why is he asking them this question at this point? It's kind of early, isn't it? Is he anticipating a disobedience yet to come from these people? Because surely he knew that over the coming years, I'm going to see this a lot. People are not going to do what I tell them to do, even though I am Lord. And I'm, I'm anticipating this. So I'm, going to, I'm just warning them now. This is what's coming. Is he anticipating what's yet coming? Or 
Is he acknowledging a disobedience already rendered? I mean, which do you think it might be? I think it could be both. It's, it's kind of a curious matter, isn't it? But maybe it's both because, sure, Jesus knew this disobedience was coming from these people and those that he would meet. But he is, after all, the eternal Son of God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the very Logos of God, the Word of God, by whom and through whom creation came into existence millennia before. And therefore, these people who are listening to him now have, since they were old enough to cry, known of God, but they have not known God. I took Spanish language all through middle school and high school, a lot of Spanish language, enough to really learn how to, to read and write. And I could read novels in Spanish. I could write term papers in Spanish. I couldn't speak it really well, but I could read and write it. And then I finally in college went to, to study abroad and in Spain and got to learn better how to speak it. It's a little bit rusty now. Don't ask me to speak it to you. But I do remember this. One of, the, one of the things that just stuck out in my mind in the, in the Spanish language, which is the case with many languages, not English, is that it has clear distinctions that are made with its vocabulary between the subtle differences in words that we don't tend to have in English. And so in Spanish, there are two verbs that mean to know. One of these verbs means to know things or facts. It means to have comprehension and to have understanding. I can know that the earth orbits the sun. I can know that Dallas is a city in the state of Texas. There are lots of facts and things that I can know, and that's a good thing. But the other verb for know is entirely different. It means to know a person, to be acquainted with another being, to be familiar with another human being, to have a friendship with someone who is in your life. I know this person and they know me. I am known by someone. It's an entirely different sense. There's a huge difference between them. And so the question is, do you know of Jesus or do you know Jesus? The theology of the question, of course, is right on. I mean, Jesus is anticipating it, and maybe people have already said it to him, Lord, Lord, whatever. And he's saying, look, you you call me Lord, Lord, and they're calling him Lord, Lord is entirely right on. I mean, that is exactly what he is. He doesn't correct the, the title. But you can have right facts and yet have no knowledge. And that's what he's after with these Folks here, you can have right facts and yet have no knowledge at all. You can have orthodox statements all over your shelves at home or at your office. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, all kinds of theological tomes scattered across the shelves and across the desk and the kitchen table. And you can learn all kinds of facts and important things about God and yet not know him. Matthew, in his gospel, reports that Jesus explains a bit more here. 
He says, there many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I did this or that in your name. I did this great thing, Lord, in your name. I I tried hard to do this thing. Lord, didn't you see me stapling apples to the branches of my tree in the backyard? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. And you never knew me. That's a striking picture, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's kind of a frightening one. It should stir us a little bit in the depth of our soul, in our hearts even, because <clears throat> to have knowledge <clears throat> about God but not know God is absolutely the worst human tragedy on the face of the earth. There's nothing worse. There is nothing worse because your heart that you cannot change can be changed if you know the one who changes hearts. And how does he do that? How does he go about changing hearts? Well, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave himself to us. If someone gives themselves for you, it will change your heart. I mean, on my eighth birthday, I'll never forget, on my eighth birthday, which is many years ago now, on my eighth birthday, my grandfather forever changed the way that I think about grandparents. He was, he was older at that time, and he had been a, a lifelong smoker. He had no right to have lived as long as he had at that point. As an eight-year-old, I didn't know the extent of his health problems at that time, but my birthday was coming up. And my grandfather came to my birthday party for all the way from their home on Pleasant, in Pleasant Grove, southeast Dallas. They came up to North Dallas and came to my birthday party. And my parents, after that party, said to me and my brother, they said, you guys ought to go with your cousin and go spend the night at your grandparents tonight. They'd really like you to come and spend the night. So we went, spent the night at my grandparents' house down Pleasant Grove, as we did often. And we slept, the three of us, my brother and my cousin and I, we slept in the back bedroom of their, their little one-story house there. And... Late early in the morning, it's still dark, 5 o'clock in the morning or so, we awoke to voices out in the hallway. And we rolled out of bed all groggy to see who was out in the hallway talking. It was my parents and my aunt and uncle. And they were out in the hallway talking with my grandmother. My, my grandfather had died that night. He had died in his sleep. And, and I learned on that day that he had said, if the last thing I do is to get to my grandson's birthday party, I'm going to get there. And that night he died. My birthday party was his permission to breathe his last breath. And forever, because he gave himself to me in that way, I I will never think of grandparents in the same way again. Because if someone gives himself for you, it will change your heart. And the eternal Son of God gave himself for you. And so how do you know if you know him? If you do what he says, if you do what he calls you to do. Paul wrote to the Romans explaining the job of an apostle himself. He said, he said, my job is to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. To call people to do as Jesus has told us to do. And, and so there's something that you and I must do. All right, so this is, this is that conflict between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God is surely sovereign over these matters. Only knowing Jesus can possibly change your heart. He's the only one that could ever do it. And yet you bear an important responsibility because 
your heart is sustained by the foundation that you build. What does he say? He goes on and tells this sort of parable. He says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Now, after two major hurricanes in just the past few weeks, the imagery of this illustration is quite clear, I think, in all of our, our eyes. We can see this thing happening. We've, we've been watching it on the news for the past two weeks, this stuff happening. And we know what it looks like. Brian Franklin and Alex Dean and some others are, are right now, still this morning, down in Beaumont, Texas. As you heard Brian announced last week, they went down there to go and partner with this church using some of the alms funds that we gathered from our congregation to go and help tangibly there on the ground and find out other ways that we can help long-term there in Beaumont because the storm came and washed everything away. I mean, you've read the news. You've seen about Rockport, Texas, or Houston, Texas, the vast city. I spoke on the phone with a pastor down there a week ago who explained to me that his house was was flooded with a foot of water. Every house in his neighborhood was flooded with a foot of water. And now everything they all own that was touched by that water, which was most everything, is now out on the curb in mountains of piles of junk waiting for the trash to come and pick them up. Because the storm came and the floods rose and the stuff went out. The imagery is fresh in our minds. But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you can't change your hearts. Only I can change your heart. And if you know me, then you put into practice the words of my mouth. And you do it by building something. You do it by building a foundation as you put yourself in the path of grace. The the man in the parable dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Again, it's an illustration. It's a parable. It's symbolic of something. But, but, but what does it mean to do the words of Jesus? Well, in John 14, Jesus elaborates some more on, on the whole idea when he explains there that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Notice he doesn't say the opposite. He doesn't say that if you keep my word, then you will learn to love me. And that's the way that we want to turn it around and and, and take control. No, he says, if you love me, then you will keep my word. So how do we do it? He goes on and explains there that you abide in him. He, he uses the illustration again. He says, I'm the vine dresser. My father, my, I'm the vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruits. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. He says, the way that you do what I tell you to do is to abide in me, not by doing good stuff. Again, not by stapling apples to the tree, but rather by putting yourself in the path of grace. What has God given to us? He's given to us this means of grace. He's given to us his word. He's given to us the worship of the church. He's given to us the the fellowship of the saints. He's given to us prayer. He's given to us the sacraments, this communion table that sits in front of you. He's given to us these elements of grace. 
these means of grace, and he calls us to put ourselves in the path. There's almost something passive to the activity of it, isn't there? He calls us to put ourselves in the path. Even though God is surely sovereign over all things, still it doesn't mean you're not responsible. It is your responsibility to build a foundation. Because you know with everything that you do, whether you're conscious of it or not, you are building a foundation. Everything you do is adding pieces to it. You know, when, when you're a child, you're being instructed in the matters of the foundation. And when you're a teenager, you're beginning to interact with the elements of that foundation. And when you're a young adult, you should be owning that foundation by now. And when you're middle-aged like I am, then you should be maturing in that foundation. And when you're older, you should be rejoicing on that foundation. In other words, it is a long obedience in the same direction. But our attention spans are not inclined to stick with it very well. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Aline Hafner is Jan's mother. I'm gonna, I didn't ask her if I would, could do this, but I'm just going to do it. Aline is Jan's mother, and she turns this week 102 years old. Many of you know Mrs. Hafner. She's been with our church and worshipped with us many times over the past years since she's moved to Dallas with Jan. And this year she'll turn 102 years old. She's a remarkable and strong-willed woman. I'll never forget, Jan told me that that Jan tried to encourage her mom to keep using her legs and keep getting up and walking. And Jan told her, if you, if you stop walking, then you're not going to be able to, to walk. Your legs are going to fail and you're not going to be able to walk. And her mother's response was, I've been walking for 100 years. I'm done walking. But you know what she's not done with yet? She's not done walking with Jesus. She's been walking with him for a hundred years. She professed faith when she was 14 years old, I think, Jan. Isn't that right? You told me. When she was 14 years old, she professed faith. I would imagine that she was engaged with the church and her family well before that. But do the math. I mean, for 88 years, consciously, she has been building a foundation. She is building upon the means of grace for nine decades on this earth, slowly and gradually. I mean, imagine, how many sermons do you think she's heard preached? A lot. How many times do you think she's engaged in the fellowship of the saints in various contexts? I I imagine you couldn't even count the times. How many times has she engaged in Scripture and Bible study on her own or with other sisters and brothers in the church. There's no way to know. I mean, anybody would have lost count by now. How many times has she come to the communion table and and taken the bread in her hands and the wine in in her hands and ingested them, taking them into her body because the Spirit of God was at work to make her heart new? How many times has she done these things? There's no way to know. Nine decades. More than than many of us will, will, will ever see. And yet, rock upon rock upon rock, she's building a foundation. You know, she, she's, she, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's remarkable to think about all that she's built, the, the baptisms that she has seen. Every little moment 
As she lives her life, the Lord God is at work through the means of grace to build a foundation in the depth of her soul. And so it is with you and me. And so it is with, with us. You know, we, we come to the communion table sometimes, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're like me in this. You come to the table and you think, I don't feel like anything happened there. You know, we kind of come expecting something great to happen, and we walk away from the communion table. We've eaten the bread. There's something magical about it, we think, and we've, we've had the, the grape juice and taste the sweetness or the wine and felt the burn going down our throat, and we expect something magical to happen, but it's not magic. But it's not meaningless because the Spirit of God is at work. Little by little by little by little, He is far more patient than you or I to build a foundation in the depth of your soul. And this is what he does. Sadly, many, many professing Christians neglect the foundation. It's so easy to choose leisure over worship. It is so easy to choose hobbies over gospel fellowship. It is so easy to choose me time over the substance of gospel growth and the means of grace But whatever it is that you're doing, you're building a foundation. It might be that you're building it with sand. And it will, when the storm comes, wash away and be known no more. Or are you building it with with the rocks of the means of grace? What we need is a change of heart. Can you change it? No. But can it be changed? Yes, God desires to win your heart. I have some friends, as I wrap up here, some friends in uh, Jerusalem. They've just moved there to live for these next, the next year or two as they, they both, a husband and a wife, pursue graduate studies there in Israel. They have two young children. And on the first day of school, just recently, the, the mother got on the bus with her two young children to take her children to school. This young American mother in Israel. And in Jerusalem, there, there are always two of everything. There's a Jewish one and there's a Palestinian one. And so they got on, on the bus. They went to take the public bus and they had to let the first bus pass by. It was too full. And the next bus was a Palestinian bus. And there was just enough room, so they climbed on. And there was, were no seats really for them, but they could stand in the aisle. And an old, old woman, a grandmother... A Palestinian grandma saw this young American mother with her two young children, and she invited, in Arabic, which my friend doesn't speak, invited her her four-year-old son to come and sit on her lap in the chair, in the seat of the bus. And so, so she took this boy right up into her lap, and she she coddled him in her lap as the bus traveled along. And my friend, the mother, watched this happen, and and this woman just just oohed and awed over this four-year-old boy, speaking to him loving words, apparently, in Arabic, pointing out to him things that they passed along the way in Arabic. He had no idea what she was saying. And at one point, he began, he's four years old, he began to pick his nose. It got a little messy. And so she took out a handkerchief and she cleaned his nose and she gave him a snack. And my, my friend was just marveling at this scene. And, and my friend summed it up this way. She said, If you show kindness to me, I'll be grateful. But if you show love to my children, my heart is yours forever. It was a beautiful picture. It is, of course, a parable of sorts for us right now in this 
Sermon on the Plain, but be careful not to get it backwards. You know, we want to think that we're like the grandma, that if we just do some dirty stuff and be nice to somebody, that, that we're going to win God's heart for it. But that's not, the, that's not the gospel. That's not the point, is it? God is the grandma who has taken into his lap a stranger child, the church. And he's spoken words of love in a language not yet understood by her. And he's wiped her snotty nose and he's given her nourishment and he's cared for her and loved her. And ultimately, as you see these things, as God does this for his church, it should win your heart. I mean, do you not see the love of God for this stranger child, the church? Do you see in Jesus the love of God for you? Many, many people insist that God just doesn't care what you're like on the outside. And I will tell you right here and now, that is foolishness. That's foolishness. God does care what you're like on the outside. He he cares very much. But what he shapes on the outside is born from what he has done on the inside. Inspect your heart and trust the work of God to make it new In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord our God, we give you thanks that you have given us your good word in Jesus, that you have called us to belong to you, and that you have, Lord, by the work of your Spirit, given us means of grace in which we can grow. Help us, Father, to do the labor of building a foundation, even recognizing that only you can make us new. And we pray that you would do that and that you would show in us and bear in us so much fruit that we would marvel at the grace of your glory, that we would call attention not even just by our words, but by our actions, by our very lives to the presence of a transforming God in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be these things for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.